Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. This week, ED's senior reporter, Matt Mace, heads back to the green room, the place where leading sustainability professionals strip back some of that corporate armour to discuss their passions, beliefs and hobbies and how these have impacted their views of corporate sustainability and responsibility. Today, we're meant to be hosting a kind of green room with a view in central London. Um, I was hoping to kind of get out on a, on a balcony now down the London Bridge to have this chat because uh, it's a lovely summer's day. I've been informed that, in fact, that balcony is a bit of a sun trap and it's I sound like such a Brit for saying this, but I, it's too hot for me to be sat outside. So I, I, I retired to a, a kind of corporate boardroom. But um, someone who can no doubt handle the heat a bit better than me is um, Ramon Aratia, the Sustainability Director at Ball Beverage and Packaging Europe. So Ramon, thank you um, very much for agreeing to this chat. I, I think the last time I personally spoke to you um, was when you were still at Interface, actually. So that would have been kind of late... 2016 so it's uh, it's good to finally catch up and and you know how have you been i suppose in yeah. in a, a year and a bit hi matt yeah it's good um it's good to be uh in the uk uh, i've been here for around 18 months uh, so you know i spent five years in in, in spain working for for uh, interface and now i've just relocated to, to the uk it's great to see you well, um, it's it's great to great to have you back. How 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 are you handling it? I imagine this is this is just home from home for you right now, isn't it? Yeah, and we just spent ten years really in, in the UK before, mm. so it was good to have you know five years back home, and now yeah with this new role uh, with the, everything that is happening uh, on on the packaging side, really exciting stuff. Uh, so uh, it's it's a, diff- it's a totally different business than than interface, but again very much on the same subject of the circular economy. And it's, um, yeah, it's obviously a great time for football, for I would have thought, in the topic of circular economy. Kind of, they've been around for, well, they've been around since 1880, um, facilities at more than 100 locations globally. Um, and it's, it's kind of found the, the company, and I suppose um, packaging companies as a whole, are very much moved from the periphery of the circular economy debate right to the heart of it, especially um, these kind of ongoing issues around plastics, ocean waste, and it seems now that any kind of company worth their salt have pledges in place to phase out single-use plastics, and that's probably opened up a whole new market for, for ball, which I'm sure we'll touch on um, later. But as, as for yourself, Ramon, um, of course, as mentioned, you were sustainability director at Interface for, I think it was eight years. Uh, before that, CSR manager uh, for Vodafone for about five years, and sustainability manager at Ericsson for four years. And, um, kind of circular economy was all part of the big remit for those jobs. We we better start then just just kind of get into grips with your new role um, at at Ball. What does it kind of uh, in, entail? And you know, are you settled in? Like for a journalist, settling in at a new job takes a couple of weeks once you get used to the the writing style and the and the subjects you can kind of get going. I imagine for a, someone leading a kind of sustainability strategy, it takes a little bit longer. Yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> 
the thing is sustainability is so wide mm. and touches on many issues so and, and, and again um, you know on the circular economy of packaging you need to really learn about you know not only how your product is produced where all the raw materials come from but again how is recycled visiting sorting centers visiting aluminium recycling but also understand the the, the competitive materials like like uh, plastics or like uh, paper or like other uh, or like glass so it's uh, been 18 months of uh, you know progressively learning and, and collectively doing with you know with with the team and uh, we're visiting you know plants all over Europe on on really interesting and still learning. <laughs> and and you mentioned the, the team. Like, what is that like? Um, I've been quite surprised uh, when I've spoken to companies that sustainability teams, considering how wide a breadth and scope it covers, sustainability teams can be quite small. So, you know, what's the team, um, you know, how, how big is the team that you remit with? And uh, also, you know, how, how does this kind of feed into boardroom discussions as well? So basically, where, where I, I head up a, a public affairs and sustainability team combined. Hmm. So it's not just a sustainability team. Uh, we don't do the reporting. We don't do the, 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 the sort of investor relations that's done at corporate level. And we, we have, we, this is a, a very strategic team to deal with the conversation around packaging. So we, we are both in charge of the, let's say, public affairs, engaging with, with uh, governments, engaging with NGOs, engaging with opinion leaders on the packaging subject, uh, um, dealing with the uh, industry associations, and, 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 and also you know, influencing the market about, around how we get you know, towards more recyclable uh, packaging. So it's, it's a team, we have uh, four people, one in each European, let's say, region, uh, and, and each of them, they know they're both sustainability and public affairs mm. managers uh, combined. So a bit different than the usual corporate sustainability team. I imagine in sustainability every day, there's no such thing as that's an average day, I know, nine to five day, but but um, typically, as you kind of become embedded in your new role, what, what you know, kind of, remits are you focusing on I mean you mentioned packaging but away from that as well what kind of other aspects of sustainability are, are you having to cover yeah so basically one of the things of course we're looking at our operations mm. and we're looking at how we uh, establish the science-based uh, targets how we are uh, you know with water and how we have a, a you know really getting our operations to, to a high level of uh, performance or sustainability but 90% of my time is looking at product, which at the end of the day has the, the biggest impact uh, uh, of all, and also is the biggest uh, opportunity for the industry uh, as well to extend uh, our our uh, product into other categories where, where actually beverage cans uh, are not uh, present yet. So I spend a lot of time at industry level. Uh, I spend a lot of time learning around Recycling. So one of the things I'm focusing is how can we increase the recycling rates for for beverage cans from the sort of 75 as a European mm. average towards the 90s, and there are many different uh, ways of, of doing that. So I'm putting the roadmap for the industry around how we can uh, increase that. Other thing I'm I'm working on across industries also an initiative called Every Can Counts, which is about awareness on on the go because mainly people are consuming more on the go. Mm. When you look at whatever from from sushi to food pack uh, food packaging, but also beverage and and there is little infrastructure on the go and we need to create that. So I lead the uh, I'm the chairman of an initiative called Every Can Counts mm -hmm. uh, where we go to music festivals and other on the go and we raise awareness of can recycling. So I spend quite a lot of time 
uh, there. And then the whole the other thing is around you know how we influence the debate. So it's about studies. It's about really looking at how can you how can you reform the recycling systems in, in, in countries so that from the product design point of view, from the logistics point of view, from the sorting point of view, from the uh, recycling capacity point of view, you can reform those 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 systems and you, you achieve, you know, I really think that it's possible in packaging to achieve near 100% recycling rate, like mm. 90 or percent or, or more. But you need to combine and you need to align uh, the product design with the sorting, with the recycling. So that's I spend quite a lot of time on that. It sounds like um, yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of kind of public awareness and, and advocacy around reform. Um, has that always been the case in sustainability? I'm, I'm I've been in this kind of sector for only three years, so um, no time at all. But it, even in that short time, it seems a lot more companies are moving away from focusing on their own operations to becoming a much more vocal about that system reform, that industry reform as a whole. Is this something you've noticed? I mean, you've from from at the start to your role at Ericsson, is this something that's... It's coming come, come step on? by step, and I think it's also issue by issue. So, um, you know, companies, you know, they normally know what are the impacts on, on in-house, but actually the big impacts of companies are either in the supply chain or in the consumer side, and some companies start to really manage uh, that. And in the last five years, we are seeing more companies aware of that. And then... If you look at what happened in the last 10 years with, with the whole carbon conversation, we really got a sort of worldwide transformation about how the energy system need to, need to be transformed, how um, that whole way of how we consume energy, uh, you know, from, from standards at product level, with the world, how you regulate how the energy consuming products uh, uh, you know how do you incentivize that? So on the whole carbon thing, it, it that showed us uh, a way of how can you really redesign at systems level, and a lot of companies got uh, engaged into that. And now, in the last uh, year, you have the plastic issue. So all the wealth of knowledge that we gain from from the carbon uh, thinking, now we can apply to to, to the whole packaging. And, and, and that's great because it's, it's systems level. You know, you cannot do it in one company. Mm -hmm. This needs to have conversations at raw materials level, at, at you know the brands and how the which, which are the materials that the brands use. Estable has to be conversations with the retailers. Has to be conversations. You know, it has to be changing the system. And that's why it's so difficult. No, no company can can do it. So I, I, it's, it has to be the regulators really need to act, uh, act as well. So it, this is common, but we have the luxury of seeing what happened in the energy mm. and, and the carbon for the last 10 years. So we really think we can, those 10 years can become three for packaging. Well, that's, um, that's really inspiring stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, learning from other, other aspects of it and accelerating the time frame to actually implement the changes is really nice to hear. And um, just touch on the carbon thinking. You mentioned, um, so I know for facts that kind of Ball is committed to reducing its carbon footprint um, per region by 10% by 2020. Um, is that correct? I think it's uh, 25%. Uh, that, that's the scope one and two. Okay. If you look at uh, the overall uh, carbon mm. in the supply chain, it's 25 by 2020. But we're going to publish uh, science-based uh, targets uh, you know, soon that you know, okay. that, yeah, that much, was... more, much more um, uh, 
that address. That was uh, generally my question. I was going to ask you if you touched on science based science project. So that's all ready and in place to. Yeah, we've got guys that have done a great job of looking at you know much more aggressive targets. So I think uh, you know probably we'll, we'll see a bit more action on, on that. Great, great to see. And yeah, that's um, a noticeable trend we're seeing amongst the private sector companies. A lot more going for for the science based targets as well. Do you? Um, I mean. You've you've been noted as a kind of advocate for radical sustainability. Um, is is that the kind of radical levels of change that need to be done? It's not just setting targets around carbon and energy based on what you think is achievable, but actually what the planet needs. Totally, I think we need to transform the the, the thinking and, and and first of all, it, it, looking from from scope, people have been quite comfortable on scope one and two uh, and. People need to look outside the boundaries of companies and look at you know what is the actual impact of my product on the planet. Where you know all the stuff needed to make my product, all stuff needed to either use or recycle my product. And I think people are realizing that you also can achieve radical aims even if you don't have their own control. Because once your product is at the retailer, once your product is at the consumer. When your products at that recycling center, you sometimes you don't have the control. But I think companies are are waking up to, to that fact. And the only way to go to radical systems is is thinking on on, on that wider level and, and collaboration at system thinking. And touching on that that systems thinking, um, you you campaign for this kind of truly circular economy, as you've mentioned. You said you believe in kind of hundred percent recycling rates for for packaging. Um, and you said that kind of that time frame could be really reduced from a 10 years, which it took from energy and carbon to get in place to, to free. Um, it's just a, it's just an awful lot that needs changing. So you mentioned the role of regulations and, and regulators in, in facilitating that change. But in the meantime, you know, what, what can businesses really, really do to help realise your ambitions and your beliefs? I think... A lot of things need to happen at many different levels if you want to achieve radical. You cannot achieve only on, on one part. So first, on the packaging side, first of all, you need to have design, better product design. It cannot be that still today there are so many non-recyclable packaging because it's either black uh, and, and the, the sorting centers mm-hmm. don't, 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 don't take it, because it has some contaminants that they contaminate the other the other uh, packaging, because the um, packaging it has many different bits which are very difficult to, to, to separate. So, as a bare minimum, what, what some other companies are doing around committed to 100% recyclables, this is absolutely key. Mm. So product design is absolutely key, and and one of the things we're lucky is to have the can, the beverage can, which you know is is mono material uh, and it's the same, it's aluminium, endlessly recyclable. So. On, on, on the product design front, we, we're done on our side. But I think as a, as the society, the companies need to really, and especially retailers and brands, need to choose those the, the, the packaging which is not which is easy mm-hmm. to sort, easy to recycle. That's that's absolutely key. The other one is we need to reform the the, the recycling system so that not only we have curbside collection house by house, but we also have on the go. Uh, infrastructure because there is more food consumed on the go, more drinks consumed on the go. So we should be able to, uh, to 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 recycle at tube stations and high street. And that that in the UK is a particularly bad problem. In, in other countries, is not you know they have more in, on the go infrastructure. So then the other one is around uh, 
think re rewarding those products and those materials that are better and that have lesser full cost of recycling. And at the moment, you know, you just pay a fee and everybody more or less, you know, has the same. So this is the concept of eco-modulation and this is what the EU is pushing around. If your product is not recyclable, either you ban that product mm. or you pay a higher fee. And if your product is more recyclable or has less recycling cost, you pay a lower fee. So if you would really want to make justice to, to, to actual, you know, the aluminium, you, you shouldn't even pay money because aluminium is subsidizing the, the overall, let's say, system. And, and I think that eco-modulation is going to apply, you know, new, new, new thinking. And then also, um, there are technologies out there. We need to develop technologies for certain materials that are not currently recyclable to recycle. Uh, we need to develop uh, more technologies to, to be more effective in, in sorting uh, centers. And, um, and we need to reform how those systems and technologies are rewarded. If you do all of those things together, nicely planned, uh, then you achieve, you can achieve almost, you know, 90% or, or even more of overall packaging recycling. You said you are there in terms of the, the, the products side of it, they are all kind of 100% recyclable. Um, but on that transition as, as a wider, I suppose, uh, industry, are, are there going to be some casualties? You mentioned, you know, the kind of incentives for recycled uh, or recyclable content and that some companies should be, or some products should not be allowed to be essentially traded. Are, are some companies that are not act, not acting in the way they should be, not aware or not promoting the circular economy, are they going to be at risk from this? And should they be at risk? The, the, the switch from sort of uh, the current fees that you pay for, for, for your product to put in the market for recycling towards eco-modulation fees is going to create that already. They're going to be mm. winners and losers. So if you reward so from, from that point of view, there would be uh, either the fees that you pay, some people are thinking about taxes, some people are thinking about taxes according to the recycling rate. So if your product is recycled at you know 90%, you pay zero tax, if you pay or, or zero levy, if your product is recycled, not recycled or not recyclable, then you pay a hefty tax. That's, that's you know, in some countries, these are, they're, they're already playing with this. So it's going to be winners and losers. That, that's no doubt of that. The, the question, the debate is how much of modulation is going to occur? Are, we go, are they going to be based on the truly full net cost of recycling? Or is it going to be uh, somehow watered down by other things? And, and that, that's the, the question. Um, I was I actually stopped off at about three different supermarkets today uh, on the way up here just to try and find the cans of water that are starting to go on sale. I think Tesco's are now stocking them. But and you can just notice, especially when you go down the kind of <clears throat> the chilled section where you can get all the the meal deals, it is starting to change how it looks. There's a lot more kind of cans, um, a lot more kind of Coke cans appearing, whereas before it was always bottles. So we are starting to see um, see that shift. So I mean the the plastics debate and what it's built on is obviously terrible in regards to resource efficiency, uh, the health of the planet in general. But um, did Ball just look at this and think this is a really good you know, market opportunity for, for us and the industry? Yeah, every, every packaging has its own good things and bad things. Um, you know, the, the issue with, with uh, cans is that, you know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, a, um, uh, it's a metal, so you cannot see the product. And 
people have been accustomed to to in, in water markets to see the product. So okay, so no, but but the plastic issue is becoming so big that people are saying, okay, maybe if I have my brand into uh, a, a aluminum can, if we make it cool, they're thinking about also resealing options. Uh, people are consuming in, in the smaller formats anyway, so resealing is not an issue, and you can you just you know have a twenty two hundred uh, mil or two hundred fifty. So what the the market is. Is changing and people are exploring with different things. What used to be like, okay, cans are for soft drinks, energy drinks, and beer, and then PET bottles is for water and other things. This is this is changing, and there will be brands entering and challenging uh, from the sustainability point in, in mind, from and from other ways of marketing also in mind, challenging the status quo. So yes, it's it's, it's an opportunity, obviously, uh, for us. We're really uh, behind and, and trying to grab that opportunity, um, and, and, and and overall, I think there would be yeah winners uh, and losers, and and to let's give an opportunity to the market to decide. We know how it works. The 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 retailers, I think, they're going to be very important. Not only mm -hmm. the brands putting beverage on the market, but retailers. And you've seen you touched on the meal deal. The, the retailers edited the choice on the meal deal. So you don't have sometimes the sugary drinks mm. with the meal deal because it, they were edited down that to the to the diet versions. Are they gonna edit the choice from PET bottle to cans? That's something to see. And we're seeing some early signs that they might be doing things like that. But again, editing the choice at the level of retailer is something um, that uh, that might might happen. That's yeah, that's a point I hadn't considered actually. It's quite interesting because I'm Obviously, consumers are very aware of the situation, but um, they're, uh, they're probably and they're, they're obviously calling for change and retailers reacting. But I don't think re um, most consumers necessarily know the the wider uh, sustainability impacts of, of potentially moving away from uh, single use plastics or something like biodegradable or oxydegradable. So the fact that retailers could use choice editing um, as as a concept does um, sound like a good idea. Totally. So there are some people who say, "Oh, we're gonna, you know, to, to become absolutely plastic-free." I think plastic has some, uh, you know, quite, you know, quite a lot of markets where you know it's, it's, it offers value. And also, if you look at, for example, one of the quotes I, I saw from Richard Walker from uh, Iceland, who wanted to be plastic-free, is that he would see options and alternatives around eighty percent of the things, and then there would be twenty percent that would be difficult. So this, either you find an alternative or actually there are some sort of ways that in, in which plastic can serve a purpose for certain things. But actually the, the bit that is, uh, is striking for me is that in 80% of the products, they think that they have an alternative. So on beverage, actually you have already uh, alternatives if, if you want. But there is a there is like a, a life cycle analysis and aspect to it. I mean, you, you, you offered the kind of the full product transparency um, was it 2012? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's that's that whole point of taking you know the whole lifestyle impact of, of a product that you're putting onto market um, in terms of you know what does it take to produce? How, what, what can you do about disposal aspects of it? And we, we see it with plastics. I am of the belief that especially in the UK we'll get a lot of this stuff probably wrong. We'll probably make a lot of mistakes. And there'll be a lot of unintended consequences. I think there's a big there's a big opportunity for companies to unintentionally perhaps greenwash they'll say 
you know, with consumer demand as fierce as it is, they'll say, yep, we're not, um, we're not using single-use plastics, so we've got this oxy-degradable, we've got this biodegradable stuff, which, yeah, can, can degrade, but only in industrial uh, situations. But a consumer will read that and think, I can chuck that, chuck that on the curb and it won't harm, won't harm the environment. And I think there's a lack of conversation, perhaps going on certainly at policy level, um, about the life cycle aspects um, of it. So, so you know, in your view, as, as someone who kind of offered that for product transparency, how, how do the different materials, the, the biodegradable um, plastics, the single-use glass and and, and uh, aluminium and, and metal, how do they all kind of weigh up and, and what's what's good to, to use where? Because I'm guessing it's not a silver bullet, there's no one-size-fits-all solution here. Yeah. So, it, it first of all, the, the, it depends on, you know, sometimes the methodology that you use mm. and... Uh, it depends on how, for example, with some people have been uh, accounting, you know, that if you have recycled content, then you have a zero impact. And actually, the recycling, you know, it, it doesn't take into account that the material degrades and you can only recycle one or two times, like in paper or in PET mm. or, you know, or like you know, several uh, times, but not indefinitely. Yeah. Uh, so that is one one thing. And also, let's say carbon is not going to, it's going to, not only the, 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 the is not the only thing. So people have sometimes been focused only on carbon and there's no way today to measure the impact on marine litter. And this is the new thing to the debate. Mm. Let's uh, not, uh, you know, I, I, want, I, I don't want to uh, hide that aluminum is, in, is energy intensive. In order to make aluminum for the first time is energy intensive. So aluminum, if you have a, a package of aluminum made from virgin, would be high energy intensive, high carbon. But if you have a situation where you have high recycling, then you make the it's indefinitely uh, recyclable. And so today in the UK already 72% of the cans are recycled and mm. we have a roadmap to go to 90%. So the thing is, how can we move so that you know, we reduce to the maximum the, um, the amount of primary aluminium that you get. And already you start seeing in the 70s, 75, that actually the can gets, it starts to get better than other packaging. That only, if, even if you don't take into account the other issues like marine litter, um, the impact of uh, plastics in the food chain, etc. So for us, one of my key things is to ensure that across Europe we move to 90 plus recycling rates so that then is when really metal is at its best mm -hmm. because then it's material that is circulated indefinitely. 75% of the aluminium ever mined is uh, in still in use today and this is what we, you want to achieve. You want to achieve absolutely the, 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 the losses that go either landfill uh, or other sources. The other thing that is happening in our favor is going to be the move from landfill into uh, other, uh, like both recycling and incineration. And even in the UK, moving from landfill to incineration, you, you can recover uh, the aluminium from the bottom ashes of the incineration okay. and recycle that. So that's the beauty of metals, that once you have a, a metal on the system, it can be recycled in, indefinitely. But we need to achieve those 90, 95% to achieve a full, full circularity. And that's, that's what you touched on earlier. That's where policy, business, all the actors come together and essentially lay out that roadmap, I take it. Um, and and the, for me, it is the, it is the change of paradigm. We, the, the current paradigm was the resource efficiency, which 
he created materials that were cheap to produce and expensive to recycle. So it was a great carbon story, la la la, but then they didn't take into account the other bits. And what we need to move is towards a, a circular economy paradigm where you take into account the full carbon and uh, economic costs of recycling different materials. And under the resource efficiency paradigm, we have uh, got into monster materials that are very lightweight with several layers, uh, which are monster materials impossible or very difficult to recycle. We need to approach a full lens uh, for you know of the life cycle, including the, the, the recycling at the end. Um, and is this something that consumer pressure can help with? I mean, we've seen the effect that, that Blue Planet and then subsequent consumer concerns has had on phasing out single-use plastics amongst some retailers. Do they do they need to be aware of, of the the life cycle analysis? Do they? Will they be able to understand it, or in like normal shopping habits, do they have time to absorb all this information? How, how do you see that story? This, developing? this is this story is really interesting because at the end of the day, there is a, a, a very technical story, you know, making justification of, of what you know, and people really expert on the whole recycling, how it works, etc. And on the other side, you have the whole uh, campaigning and the debate at, 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 at the public debate, which is much more simplistic. So. We need to somehow try to marry the two and, and, and sort of have some decisions based on cold facts from the regulatory point of view without you know, going towards the, you know, populist mm. measures, etc. And you know, also retailers have been sort of faced to do some also populist measures with sometimes they might have unintended consequences. So it's very difficult to, to, have, to, to marry the two. And, and it's very easy to, now that the debate is so um, big, to, 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 to rush into, into things, uh, you know, with, with a short-term sort of mm -hmm. a politically correct uh, way. So really, really hard. I think it's, we need to also take some time to understand unintended consequences and, and really, uh, you know, design. How, what, what would a system with 100% recycling look like? What materials would they put in that system? And do you think this is a, a discussion that is mainly contained to packaging? I mean, we're talking today predominantly kind of food and beverage, but I also know all a lot of kind of stuff I mean, in the aerospace industry as well. But um, in terms of just just wider kind of blue sky thinking here, is, is this a kind of conversation we need to start having about the stuff we buy, like the life cycle analysis of a of a, an electric vehicle compared to kind of a hybrid one. Is, is this the kind of narrative that we need to start developing now to fully, I mean, if we're going to hit the Paris Agreement targets, surely every aspect of this needs to start being developed? Totally. And I think that's what I argued in, in the book on, on full product transparency. And that's why I think we need to look at, you know, all, all the overall thing. Um, before I was more, let's say, carbon focus mm. because that was the issue of our times and, and that, you know still the biggest number one issue but the problem is we've made so many wrong decisions also by by focusing too much on carbon which and we are you know we, we, we didn't take water seriously much more serious than we think mm. we didn't take plastics uh, and marine issues seriously and we are now really looking into the consequences of that so we need to go beyond carbon, and we need to go be you know 
as a wider possible in the life cycle. Now, there are certain things that we buy more. So food, we buy more. Where we buy more packaging with you know, food and with beverages. We buy more textiles. Those three things, food, packaging, textiles, would be the you know, things that the, we, you know, we buy more and we, we need to sort out uh, more. And then there are some things that we buy less, but they have bigger impact. A house and a car uh, mm. and, and the impacts associated with the energy of those. And this is where also you know, uh, we need to really think. What are those things that have higher impact? Well, all the things that really we buy on a regular basis. Okay, and just out of interest, you mentioned that um, full product transparency was with a more of a carbon mindset than than a circular economy. Where where did your kind of um, passion for for circular economy come from? Was it just something you discovered through work? Was it just something you noticed uh, in your spare time that actually this is becoming a real issue? How how did you kind of develop this understanding of circular economy? Yeah, I have. For me, I've, I've worked all my life on, on sustainability somehow by a bit of accident, and I've you know I've applied the, the 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 things that I learned through work through my also my personal lenses, which is you know I really hate waste. I mean I'm a person who, who hates waste. So and, and then also the other the, the thing about when when you put effort, you, you try to for me it's important. To, to make it really effective. So not only solving the issue on a silo, but really think, and, and that's what I try to apply. I, I really hate waste. I hate only solving a bit a small part of the issue to give you a nice feeling. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, uh, that, that's my, let's say my personal drive, how, how I feel so, so passionate and in many times pissed off on, <laughs> on this issue. And I suppose then, as a follow-up then, sustainability as a whole, how, how was this something that you got into? How did you decide um, that kind of CSR was, was an area that, that you wanted to kind of forge a career down? It was by luck, to be honest. And uh, I, I, I'm a chemist and then I started work on quality management and then Ericsson uh, gave me the opportunity to be the environmental manager and then uh, I've you know, learned you know, how screwed up we are in the world and, and, and actually with my involvement in Cambridge, um, which I'm a senior associate there, I, I saw you know, not how screwed up we are, but you know, how far ahead we are in, in, in many of those issues related to climate change where we're almost losing the war now. So that has got me really thinking and, and, and saying, okay, well, I can apply a little bit my business lenses to, to radic- you know, think radically. And I think, you know, if, if someone can solve this, it's the combination of really good policy design with business. And, and then the consumers will follow. We need to make things easy for consumers. And you mentioned that, that radical um, design, that radical change. Again, um, I just want to touch on a couple of your, your previous roles and <clears throat> we'll start with Interface, which was the most recent. You, you talk about radical change. I think that's a company that's probably nailed that aspect with the Mission Zero and mm-hmm. I'll climate take that later on there. Um, what was the kind of the key, if you, if you had to take away and reflect on your time, your eight years at Interface, what was the one kind of key learning you had there? I think that's something that will stay with me and help me develop personally from now on. is the ability to allow people to take risks and many companies they want to set up targets that they are comfortable complying with them and that's how politicians work as well Mm. because you just want to to, to give the feeling that you're going to achieve this target but interface said is set up an impossible target knowing that they were going to fail 
I'm still that challenged people to 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 think much more radical, and this is what really you, you, it, it takes a lot of guts to to take people to you know to to that radical thinking and to risk all your reputation uh, because it can you know some people can say that you're not going to achieve the target, but overall it showed that people also give you the credit for trying hard, and this is for me the the base thing of of interface. And I suppose then for, for anyone that's listening to this <clears throat> at home or commuting um, and they're perhaps, you know, trying to get that radical thinking, that radical uh, mindset into a, into a business or into their company, but they're, they're perhaps operating in, in a business that is a bit risk averse, as you mentioned, what, what kind of steps can they start taking to engage other areas of business and start having a different conversation? I think we need to look always through the product lens. What do your company sells? What is the product, and how, what is the impact on of your product? And where are the opportunities for your product to cannibalize worse products? So, for a sustainability director, it's much more interesting when you work for companies that have better products that they're gonna eat other products. And 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 and. If you work on, on, on companies where your product is part of the problem and there is likely, you know, very little likelihood to solve, you know, that's very difficult to, to be as a sustainability manager. So I don't have, I don't have much uh, advice for those. But the thing is how, you know, look th first of all, look through the product lenses and look at how can your product either substitute directly on the indirectly to others. And that's your whole sustainability sort of, uh, strategy and I suppose in a, a similar kind of <clears throat> think back and, and view on your time at Vodafone CSR manager there for, for five years I think if I make quickly that was still on the kind of the, the phone recycling aspect of it as well a lot of that so what was your kind of key remits there and, and another key aspect that you've taken away from it Vodafone was uh, um, great first of all because the you know, company which was very candid reporting things that other people at the time didn't want to do so we got a lot of credit for that and the other big thing was uh, on the social economic impact of mobile phones so how mobile phones would leapfrog the technologies in Africa Africa wouldn't have to go through landline to really uh, get access to information Africa wouldn't have to go to normal banking but mobile phone banking and, and I think that uh, how powerful could be technology to enable socio-economic development um, that was the biggest thing of, of, uh, of, of Vodafone. And then you've also got the, the flip side, the, the news the last few days was the, um, was the, the report finding that we're, we're a lot of us are in danger of getting addicted to our phones, probably a conversation for a different time, but it's an aspect of how a, you know, a radical um, product can still have those unintended uh, consequences. Um, and in the in, through the lens of sustainability, is there is there a desire to say we have a product that can solve a lot of these problems right now? It might lead to some unintended consequences down the line, but we will tackle them when they come. Is that still short term mindsets? And is there anything wrong with that? Or no, but everything which is great will be great for the good things and the bad things. You know, whether it is plastics as a, as a material which is fantastic for so many things and has unintended consequences, whether it is uh, internet, whether it is a mobile phone. So the good thing is to, the, these companies should really take the opportunity to, to really grow as much as they can, but thinking also, how can I minimize the risks? How can I minimize the consequences? Because then I'm not gonna have 
and legitimacy to, to, to a license to operate. So that's why these companies need to focus at product level, thinking about the opportunities, but also thinking how can I manage those risks so that my technology, my product, my, my material is used more for the good bits and less for the bad bits. And again, the same question to, to your time at, at Ericsson, um, sustainability manager there. I, I met you, you know, you said that was your kind of first chance to take on that role. Um, so I imagine there was a lot of personal development in that time as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I came just from, from uni and uh, it, was a, it was a company really advanced on, on the environmental part of sustainability. They were Swedish. Uh, they did the first EPD. Uh, ever these guys, I don't know, 1999 or 2000. We're talking about those years, and these guys in Sweden already uh, doing this such of uh, thing. So on the environmental side, I mean, Sweden has been you know one of the leading countries. It was great to mm. really see how from even from from the from the machinery and from the uh, uh, base station side, all you know having the environmental you know the environment thinking. That was great to learn from, from these guys. And we, we discussed the need for, for these kind of radical and, and increasingly long-term um, targets, long-term ways of thinking uh, in terms of sustainability. Has, has the fact that um, you've, you've had kind of, I mean, off the top of my head, there's one, two, three, there's four very high-profile jobs um, all to do with sustainability at kind of leading companies. And you've been there for, for various lengths of years, kind of five to eight years. Um, has, has that... Um, has that kind of disrupted, has, has it been harder to kind of set these longer term targets? Would it, would it have been easier, I suppose, if you were just at one company for 20 years and you could really take them on that journey? I mean, or has, has it been, is it part of the reason why you get up every morning is to have a, have a different challenge at these new jobs? Or It's a balance. I think having a, you know, the same job forever is boring. Let's, <laughs> let's accept that. But you cannot, the level of change you can achieve in one year, two years, mm. I don't think is, you know, massive enough. So yeah. I really think, you know, between four and six years is, is the right time to transform companies. Um, you know, in Interface, you know, I managed to transform a lot of things in Interface Europe, you know, reducing in carbon by 98%, etc., etc. Mm. et cetera. In, let's say, six years and then I had two extra because you know it was great and we were also influencing other businesses etc but you know it, it starts to get already too too long mm. so I think for me the advice for people would be you know around you know four years six years uh, is, is, is the time where you really can uh, transform it, it's it's helpful it's um it's obviously a, a small drop in the ocean but I was, I was reading a, a blog from John Elkington he said the need is to you know we've got to clean oceans not not just fish so it's, it's, I suppose it's a benefit you can you reduce carbon by 98% at Interface and then take some of that learnings and go off into another company and, and help embed similar levels of ambitions as well. Totally. I think this is the, you know, one of the things that why this community of, of sustainability people you know, very important is because we're learning from one company to another one, we're learning from issues, all these you know, 10 years of carbon experience, we're now you know, using it to solve other issues. And the, 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 the level of, of, not only in our sustainability community, but you know, the CEOs already, mm. they have learned you know, in those, let's say, 10, 15 years of, 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 of this subject is, is amazing and, and, and that sort of accelerates things. 
And I realise um, we've been chatting for, for quite a while, and I don't want to keep you for too long. I do realise you're probably quite a busy uh, person, but um, we, we've kind of had a nice little uh, jog back um, through time to your previous roles, and they, they kind of accumulate around about 20 years, two decades-ish, um, that you've been at, the, at those various jobs. Edie as well is also kind of celebrating its 20th anniversary, um, which, which brings me nice on to this last question. We've looked back at the last two decades uh, but just quickly looking ahead at these next two decades, how do you see um, the the world of corporate sustainability evolving? Um, are there any kind of new areas of consumer concerns that are going to emerge? Are there any kind of new operations or ideas that companies will start focusing on? Yeah, uh, we, maybe you, you remember on, on this uh, when you know twenty years ago, you know sustainability people we were the the losers of of these. You know we were doing a small things we're doing to the charity or uh, environmental you know and strategic reporting and things like that now we're driving the world now a lot of things are happening you know the energy the energy market at various levels is, is driven by sustainability the car market is driven by sustainability so much that even they cheat <laughs> the packaging is totally driven by sustainability so you know, I feel in the driving seat. I feel that the sustainability experts were running the show uh, in many in many uh, cases. And yes, the guys in the uh, in the city investors, they are you know they are running the show in different ways. But actually, we are shaping a lot mm-hmm. of what is uh, going on. So that is what is changed. And the amount of uh, we only have one planet. Is there are some limits and constraints that the economy needs to do, and that's why. It's important being in the driving seat, and, and it, this can only grow. And I just build on that as well. Then that, that's the role of sustainability. Are there any? Uh, is that if that's the role of a sustainability professional? Are there any new skills that are going to have to be developed? It may make you sound. It makes it sound like you feel sustainability professional will become like a focal point of a business, um, a much more consumer facing, probably more on the news, etc. So, are there any kind of skills that that perhaps? Um, CSR as a whole isn't focused on right now that, that will need to be key to, a, to the success of, a, of an individual? Yeah, I think there's going to be much more, more jobs on sustainability and that means not only they, you know, not only they generate sustainability or, you know, or, or, or that, that is going to be less strategic doing the reporting, investor engagement, that, that, that is going to be less, less important and it's going to be more jobs around Transformation. How can you transform your industry? How can you, um, you know, you know, develop working with business development, working with innovation is going to be also working around you know the sustainability person who does public affairs and who does uh, communications uh, at the strategic level and influence. I think it's going to be quite a lot of that. And at the same time, they're going to have also really niche jobs. They're going to be experts on whatever sustainable packaging. They're going to be experts on sustainable uh, textiles. They're going to be experts. On human rights, you know, this is going to be it's going to become more and more and more niche. From a guy who does only water footprinting to a guy who does, uh, yeah, uh, new materials. So we're going to have both the sustainability people being more business driven, more mainstream, more market disruptors. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the, as the head of the sustainability, and they're going to have a, a range of consultant, freelance, and people in teams who are be involved in the sustainability space but on many different niches and levels right well um that, that was great um i've certainly 
give me a lot of optimism for the future, but maybe I need to go and rethink my uh, my food and drinks purchases uh, from now on. No more meal deals until more more cans are on the shelves is, is my takeaway from this. Uh, but um, Ramon, um, it's been fascinating uh, to chat with you. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it too. Very good, thank you. Go nice to, to, to see you after a couple of years. Yeah, I know, yeah. It's uh, always good to catch up um, with an old friend. Um, and just for those listening at home, um, a reminder that these podcasts uh, they can be listened to by the ED website, uh, just search Sustainable Business Covenant. Um, and that is also applicable to iTunes and now I believe uh, Spotify and we're on Android. Um, so do, do check us out on, on, on those platforms. Uh, but until next time, it's goodbye.